If you have your Bibles, please join me in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We've been looking at Haggai, and the, the people had returned from captivity. They were in Babylonian captivity. They were freed by the Persians and released to go back to Israel. Upon their return, uh, Ezra tells us that they began laying the foundation. Uh, well, when they got back to Israel, the temple was destroyed, and uh, it was really in bad shape. And so when the people got back, they had to, they had to start work on that temple. Uh, and King Darius was told by God, you need to release them and allow them to go back and work on that temple. If you go in and you read Ezra. They proceeded to work on the temple. They got the altar built and the foundation, and then the people stopped work. Ezra chapter 4 says the work stopped. Then the people focused on their homes. Of course, that was in violation of what God had told them to do. God told them to start work on the temple. And so, as they planted their crops and forgot about God's house, God took away their profits. He blew them away. They'd put money in their pockets only to have that money fall out. They weren't saving anything. They were barely uh, getting by. And then the people realized when Haggai said, look, you guys putting it in contemporary terms, you're messed up. You need to repent. So the people repented. Now we're on the good side of Haggai. So that kind of catches you up of where we're at today. Now, chapter 2 begins the journey of rebuilding. Very interesting uh, five verses here. And the first thing we're going to look at is this. We must have a vision. Any time you preach from the Old Testament, any time a pastor preaches from the Old Testament, he needs to try to make contemporary application in a way in which can fit the text and do honor to the text. So... Haggai wanted them to get a vision. It wasn't a good vision. It was a bad vision. But in that bad vision, they begin to realize the enormity of the situation. And so we start here. Now in verse 1, we read, In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month. So we've looked at several dates. Unless I changed it. Did you see it went up? That was, that was pretty cool. Any, any, anyway, so first of all, it would have been probably, at least what I'm reading, it would have been uh, Sukkot, which is the Feast, Feast of Booths, which can be September or October, but in this case, probably September 15th. So the Feast of Booths goes seven days, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, would give us seven days. Now, the people lived in booths for seven days. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. And the reason that they did that was to commemorate the Exodus. So if we're using this timeline, which we used last time, uh, then we're looking at the September 21st being the end at sundown. So the people lived in booths for seven days. It was an emphasis on the Exodus from... from uh, Egypt. On the seventh day of 
Sukkot or the Feast of Booths, there would be a harvest. So they would go out, they would harvest. It was a time of celebration and there was no work. There was no work. Seventh day, usually pretty important. On the seventh day, God rested. So you see the timeline here, which <clears throat> leads us that this would be the 21st of September, the last day of Sukkot. And ultimately, 21 September. So there wasn't much time. There was three weeks after the people repented. You remember last time we were together that they were gathering the materials to begin work on the temple. It wasn't that the people repented and said, oh, well, let's set God's house aside again. It was giving them the opportunity to gather resources and materials to begin working on God's house. I would actually love this. Feast of Booths, to live in a tent for a week. I could do that. I like it. But they eat their meals there. This is one. There's many. If you look in Israel, they have them all over the place during the Feast of Booths. This is a more elaborate one. Uh, but the whole family would go inside there. They would sleep. And it commemorates the exodus from Israel. Hundreds of years of remembering. So, as many scholars say, and I kind of agree with them at this point, uh, this seventh month of the 21st day of the month is probably the culmination of the Israelites' celebration of Sukkot. Now, at this point, the word of the Lord, notice verse 1, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. The Hebrew word deval means something spoken. So, when Haggai writes here, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the word of the Lord was verbally spoken to Haggai. It was something that he verbally heard. And we looked at this uh, by the hand of Haggai, meaning that Haggai received that message, he had it in his hand, and he was responsible to deliver it. So he had gotten a direct word from God. He took that direct word, he put it to pen and paper, but he also spoke that word. Haggai did never, he never spoke anything that God told him not to. So Haggai followed God's directions word for word. Now the prophet Navy, this is interesting. I was going to pass it up, but I usually go through each word and, and look it up. This, this was interesting, Navi. It means a male who speaks or proclaims the message of a deity. So when we think about the prophet Haggai, a couple of things ring clear. One is he was in communication with God. Two is that he did exactly what God told him to do. And three, he became the voice for God in the midst of people at this point who had already re repented but before, can you imagine his message wasn't popular? <laughs> you say, look, you, you guys are messed up. You need to repent. That's it's not a very popular message. But they did. They responded immediately. There's something about when God speaks through a vessel that somehow you have this, this moment of what I would call divine inspiration in which God spoke to the hearts of the people and they responded. I have wrestled with this for years. At what point 
does the sermon, when any given pastor stands up to preach, at what point does that sermon become divinely inspired? And I think that's like trying to nail jelly to a wall. I think that every Sunday I get up here and I preach and I trust that this is what God wants me to say to the congregation. Haggai knew. He actually heard it. And so he, he preached it and gave it to the people. Now he said this. God, speaking through Haggai, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetile, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. So this message was not just for the leaders. It wasn't just for the higher-ups. It was for everybody, from top to bottom. And that's exactly what happened when they repented. You remember on this side, everybody responded to Haggai's message from the, from the king all the way down to the lowliest person. They all repented. And in that moment, God gave them restoration. And they went from being... These people say it's not time to rebuild the temple to my people. What happens in repentance is instantaneous, by the way. You don't have to wait around for God to respond. When you, in your personal life, and I think it's very, very important to draw, to draw this out, when you repent of sin in your life, and you tell God, God, I'm sorry I sinned, please forgive me. It is done. There is no waiting. God says, I will forgive that sin. It will be done. It will be gone. And you see it here. Immediately they went from these people, God said, these people say it's not time to build a house while they're building their own houses. And they repent and they say, this is not only my people, but the people said, our God. You notice there was instantaneous. So if you are out there this morning, maybe watching by Facebook or whatever means we have out there. Uh, if, if you have sinned, all you have to do is ask God simply to acknowledge the sin, ask forgiveness of that sin, and it's done. You never have to carry that sin again. And of course, repentance means to turn and go the other direction. So at this point, at this point, right now, where we are here, at this point, the church is more unified than it, well, at least the Israelites are more unified than it's ever been. What would a church be able to accomplish if everybody was unified? Where there were no divisions, everybody was on the same page. I, I think many great things. Here, uh, at this point, as he's getting ready to set them up, they are completely unified. Even though there was three weeks from the time when, when they repented to now, they were gathering materials, they were getting ready. There was nothing out of whack with that. But everybody in, in the Israelite community at this point, including the remnant, the leaders, the, the high priest, the king, they were all involved in starting the work of God. Let me encourage you. If you're not actively involved in a church, please consider it. 
please consider. You say, well, pastor, I can't do very much. Well, you can always pray. There's always prayer. Sometimes we think prayer is a last resort or last ministry. No. Prayer is vital in the life of a church. It's vital in our own personal lives. So this leads, um, this leads Haggai to ask three questions. Here's where we need to capture the vision. Right here. Who is left among you? This is verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So you can hear Haggai. Who is among you that remembers this house in its former glory? Now, when they came back, the Babylonians ransacked it, destroyed it. The Persian king delivers them from it. And so... There's no way to go back and look exactly what Solomon's temple looked like, but um, very clear it was beautiful. There's some 3D videos out there. I was going to do that, but that was like eight minutes, and, and that'd take way too much time for my sermon. But you can see how beautiful it would have been. At least biblical scholars have re, uh, reworked it, what it might have looked like. So here you have the outer court. And then you're going to go through these doors and you're going to go into the holy place. And then, of course, the holy of holies. So when you get into the holy place, you'll see the bread here. You'll see an altar there, which is the altar of incense. And you have the lights. This is very fascinating when you go back and you look at the Gospel of John. It's almost as if John said... I'm going to put Jesus in this holy place. Now, the priests would change this bread out. There was 12. There were 12 pieces or 12 loaves of bread. One, two, three, four, five, six, 12. That's for the 12 tribes of Israel. This was the altar of incense where the priests kept that going 24-7. That was one time you didn't want to be a priest and let that go out. Then there was the, uh, the menorah, the candles, which reflected the light of God. So when you think about it, we, we, you know, we think the Old Testament, that's so archaic, so out there. We don't need to learn that stuff. But in the Gospel of John, John goes into this holy place, and also Jesus talking about it. Do you remember when Jesus said, I am the bread of life? I am the light of the world. He is, John writes, a fragrant offering to God. So when you look at the temple of God, you also see the essential elements of Christ. Then you go into the Holy of Holies. Now, this is a quite a large depiction. I don't think it's actually that large. Uh, it, it's 20 cubics by 20 cubics by 20 cubics by 20 cubics, or 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. So that would be the size of it. And in the in here, which is the Ark of the Covenant, you had you had Aaron's staff, and you also had the manna. But ultimately, what you have here is the presence of God. 
Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he died? There was an earthquake and the veil of the temple was rent in two. That means that every believer has access to the Holy of Holies. Yeah. So Haggai poses this question. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Peter Williams, he writes this, the fact that among the, old, the older people, there were some who were still recalled the magnificence and glory of a temple, uh, of Solomon's temple, when they compared it to the present building, which was vastly inferior. They were filled with a sense of despondency and gloom, which communicated itself in the rest of the people. So they return. Haggai asks a question. Look at this place. How many of you remember what it used to look like? Well, there were apparently some who did know. In fact, we go to Ezra 3.11 and we read this. And the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. Yes, we laid the foundation, but by the way, we're getting ready to go work on our houses and stop. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. It wasn't that they, that they wept and cried for joy. It was the reminder of what the temple used to be, what it used to be like. Now, let me ask you a question. I think, I, I, I could be wrong. Rosemary, are you one of the original founding members here? You're not. So there's none of the original. Geraldine's, but yeah. Ruth, Ruth, how long have you been here? 1956? Let me ask you a question. What did this place used to look like? Oh, you were over in town, but when, when you built this, what do you remember? What, what was the church like? It's been a long time ago. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Is it better now than it was then? Okay, then, then we don't need the rest of this sermon. Um, and one of the things is you have to catch a vision. When you catch a vision, then you're more compelled to live out that vision. And Haggai, Haggai here says, how do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? So Haggai wanted the people to look at this and go, wait a minute, uh, let, me, let me tell you what Solomon's temple used to look like before it got destroyed. Then the people look at it and they go, whoa, wait a minute, we got a problem. It's when you catch a vision. Haggai wants the negative to become a positive. He wants them to realize the gravity of the situation and the severity of the situation and go, whoa, we got to get busy. 
We've got to get busy doing something. And I think here, Haggai, of course, this isn't just Haggai. This is God speaking through Haggai. Haggai wants to take that negative vision and he wants to flip it into the motivating factor for the people to go, we're going to do this. Hmm. So, they knew what it looked like. It didn't even come close to what it used to look like. So that's where Haggai got him. Again, they had already repented. They were getting ready to work. But Haggai wanted through God, I mean, God working through Haggai, obviously, but he wanted to get that, those questions in there so that those questions laid the foundation for what they were getting ready to do. We have a big work to do here, folks. We have a big work. My, my vision has always been 200 here. We've never gotten, well, we did at one time have 117. Uh, but my vision has always been that this church grow. But it can't just be me. It has to be all of us. We all have to be involved. It can't be one person. And, and this is what Haggai is focusing on. He had... He wanted them to see this so that they would move, be moved to action. You know what? Wow, Haggai, you're right, man. This is a mess. We're going to fix this. And so, lastly, I know you like hearing that, right? Lastly. But it could be like Paul when he wrote, finally, and then goes on another chapter and a half. Uh, work fearlessly. Not only should we capture the vision as the people did, but we must work fearlessly. Notice the command. Yet now be strong. You can underline that in your Bible. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. That's a proper name. Son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong. All the people of the land declares the Lord. Three times, Haggai uses the phrase, be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Uh, whenever something's used that many times, there's a connection. Haggai's trying to make a point. Be strong is a qual verb, and it means the ability to accomplish something with the idea of persistence. So it's the ability to accomplish something, but also to be persistent. Well, years ago, um, when I was stationed in Hawaii, they forced me and Audrey to go, re-enlisted re for it. Uh, I went to air assault school, and in air assault school, that's me on top of the tower. This was graduation day and of course the first time we went up in a helicopter we have our stuff on and we're we're down like this and we're waiting for the helicopter and one guy behind me he said Sergeant Frazier that doesn't look that high up I said yeah it doesn't until you get in the helicopter and the helicopter goes up 120 feet that's a wake-up call and 
the commander goes like this, two, and the first guys, they drop their ropes, they make sure the helicopter's going like this, you're shaking like this, and you, you, you give thumbs up, my rope's on the ground, I can see it, and then you climb out on that skid. Of course, we practiced on this tower, even 35 feet up is pretty high when you, when you get up there. But that was one element of it. There was the physical element. There was uh, all kinds of stuff that went into it. Stabo, all of these, these things. And we would get, they let us go home every night. We would get home at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, but we'd have to be on the deuce and a half at five o'clock in the morning. Then what was so fun about it I had deep, I had deep cuts from the ropes, uh, but I, in army, I just sucked it up, because I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't gonna quit. Um, that first day I got home, I was a bloody mess. Audrey said, "Oh my gosh," I had the ropes had dug into my sides, and then, so, the cadre mess with you, because when you go out there, you really are supposed to take your rank off. You don't know who's there with you. So as you approach a mile from the air assault school, air assault, air assault, air assault, air assault, air assault. And every time he said, now, if I don't hear you coming in, you're going to pay for it. I don't know. There's no way that they could not have heard us. We were screaming, yelling, and he goes, I didn't hear you all. Get down. And they made us, I mean, it was, it was rough. And I did this for two weeks at aerosol school. When I came down this, oh, wait, am I got another slide here? Hang on. There I am coming down the slide. I mean, down the, you know what I mean. There I am, bounding down, bounding down. Not, not down the slide, right? Slippy slide. Uh, down the wall, I was rappelling down. I got down to the bottom, and this guy put my wings on, and he punched me. With uh, that's, that's how they do it. That's how they do it. I said, thank you, and I walked away, and I went, oh, God. You know what? You know what? Yeah, I graduated. I got the air assault wings. But you know what? I didn't realize this till much, much later. God used the army to prepare me for ministry. I am that dense where I have to, I need, if you get hit, one guy, a friend of mine in my last church, we were driving up to see the Braves in Milwaukee, and we were going through a really bad time. And uh, he goes, Pastor Mike, he said, man, you can take a heck of a punch. And I said, well, Dan, the thing is, you really shouldn't get hit. But, uh, yeah. You know what? There's going, it, it's, it's a tough time. Richard Taylor, each element of this tripartite audience, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people, is the recipient of are the recipients admonished to be strong? Each of them is called upon to allow God's Spirit to renew their determination. 
and moral courage for the task ahead. So they look at this. They look at this temple and they go, the, the real thing would be this. This is overwhelming. The task is overwhelming. I just don't know if I have the strength to do it. Remember Haggai's words. Be strong, be strong, be strong. That doesn't just apply to ministry. That applies to life. Be strong. Stay the course. God is with you. He is among you. He is in you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Stay the course. Work. Notice what Haggai says after tells them to be strong. Work. Asa. That means to perform an event or a task. In this case, work. Do you remember this? For I am with you. You remember that from last week. That means that God is present. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. The people repented. Immediately God came down and was around them and among them. I am with you. God is near. Now, he says this. Not, not declares the Lord, but now he adds the Lord of hosts. Do you remember that? The Lord of hosts was an army, sometimes an angelic army, sometimes a physical army, but at all times it represents the power of God. God is telling the people of Israel, do not fear, I am with you, be strong, be strong, be strong. Whenever you feel like quitting, don't, keep moving forward, one foot in front of the other. That air assault mile just about killed me. We had two and a half hours to complete it. It about killed me. And I was in good condition. We were running seven miles a day in air assault school. But that thing nearly killed me. We had to carry a person down a side of a mountain and get it done and find our bearings using our compass. That about killed me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, say it didn't I was hurting but the air assault motto never give up never give up the one night we flew into the tree line and we were jumping the pilot got, the helicopter pilot got a little too close to the top of the trees. I jumped on this side, a man jumped on that side, and I heard his, his leg snap. I yelled to him, keep going, keep going, keep going, get down. Of course, he got down, he had a compound fracture. But he didn't stop. Even though he was hurting, he did not stop. He kept going down. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Ministry is tough. Those of you that teach Sunday school, you know it's tough. You know it's difficult. Pastoring is tough. It is not easy. 
some of the junk that I've had to deal with in 33 years of ministry sometimes has really shocked me. Particularly as a young pastor, I thought everybody loved pastors. Good morning, they don't. But, again, stay the course. When, and look, in life, in life, life is tough, right? You guys go through difficult situations. Let me tell you this morning, as your pastor, just stay the course. When you don't feel like you can get out of bed, get out of bed. Keep on keeping on. You keep moving forward. you know why? Because Christ is in you. Haggai says, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You have infinite power because of who you are connected to. This isn't about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about how well I can do it. But you can say, God, I really don't feel like doing this today. And I just ask that your power pour through me. Get ready. God can change things. So, telling you, work. Stay the course. If you get tired in ministry, ask God to give you the strength. I, I've been there. I've been there a lot. And I just say, God, you know, is it time I plug this thing up and head? No. Stay the course. Ministry and life require steadfastness. If I didn't think God was with me and with you and with this church, I'd be either, either in Florida or Texas. But I know for a fact that God is here. In fact, God is here this morning. God is in our midst. Stay the course. I want to encourage you to keep running. Whatever it is in your life that's causing you to be bogged down, stay the course. God is with you. And Haggai reminds the people, work. Keep moving forward. One of the reasons that they're fearless is because of the covenant. Haggai says, God speaking through Haggai to the people, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. All the Old Testament, so archaic, so far removed from my real life, right? Not really. <laughs> in, in fact, a lot of the Old Testament filters into the New Testament. Look at this. Exodus 9, this is even before God gave the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now then, if you, will he, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel, Moses. Peter says it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Old Testament's not archaic. It comes over. And the bottom line is, we are his possessions and we are a royal priesthood. Everybody in here, you have access to the Holy of Holies because you are, in a sense, a priest unto yourself. And it's not because of what you did or what I did. It's because of who is in me and what he has done in my life and also what he's done in your life, how he's changed it. Haggai says, my spirit remains in your midst. I love this. In the New Testament, uh, capital S, spirit, is the word for pneuma. That's the Greek word, pneuma. And that means breath or wind. So it's like you see the wind. You see the effects on the trees. That's what the Holy Spirit is. You can see the effects. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the effects on the life of an individual. And you can see when God is at work around you. Here, the Hebrew is uak. Uak. It's kind of a weird pronouncing name. And you know what that means? It means breath or wind. But more significantly, more significantly, my spirit is in your midst and it remains. His uak, his wind or his breath was with the people. That's interesting because we just assume that God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, is absent altogether in the Old Testament. At least that's what some people think. The Holy Spirit was there. God was giving them the spirit who was in their midst, who was breathing and causing. And by the way, this also refers to power. Notice, God didn't say work. Go ahead. Go on now. He said, work for I am with you and I will send the spirit to be in your midst. You and I cannot do a darn thing apart from Christ. But the Holy Spirit working through us gives us not only God's divine power, but his power in general to accomplish. This is why Haggai says, Yahweh, fear not. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt. That's why we believe that this is the period of Sukkot. He mentions it right here, when I came out of Egypt. That's where scholars believe that I talked about earlier in this sermon about Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, which is how the scholars wind up at 21 September. So, my spirit remains, fear not, Yahweh. Now, if you look at it this way, if you take the knot off for a minute, fear, and this Yahweh means feeling distressed or deeply concerned. But Haggai adds, fear not. You're not supposed to feel that way. So listen to this. Whenever fear grips you, just remember whose grip you are in. 
You are in the grips of the Almighty God, and nothing can hurt you, ultimately. And he says, fear not. And by the way, there is a good fear. Some fear leads to godliness and knowledge. Some fear is crippling and debilitating. Haggai says, that's not what you need. What you need is not to be afraid because Yodehavev, the Lord God, is with you. If you have crippling fear in your life, I would encourage you to say, I am not going to let this cripple me. My God is with me. He walks with me and he will guide me safely. Doesn't mean I won't have problems or, or, or difficult situations, but I'm not going to be fearful of this. I'm just going to keep walking because I know that God is with me. So, in closing... We must have a view of reality into the situations of our lives. Sometimes that reality will wake us up. We learned last week, too, that to wake up, God showed them. This reality will stir us in our own lives. Number three, even though the task looks difficult, we must stay the course. Be strong. You got a situation in your life this morning, I want to encourage you as your pastor, be strong, stay the course. 